Zephyr Cove, Lake Tahoe, Home Church Retreat, September 16th through 18th. This is Session 2. Hello, friends, and good morning to you all. Uh, before we get started, let's give the Lord some love. Father in heaven, shine your light over this place and bring us to our knees in gratitude for all you do and will do as we continue to find what you desire of each one of us. Help us to be strong, Lord, as we walk through this life and allow us to share you with all those who are lost and hurting. We give you all the glory, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So my theme for this weekend is called The Line in Between. This was a thought that came to me when me and my husband had attended a funeral for a dear friend a while back. Though there was great sadness because he was no longer here and he will be greatly missed. It was also a glorious celebration because this man knew Jesus and he is with him now. When I pictured my friend's headstone, I saw his name in full, first, middle, and last. It also said that he was a wonderful husband, father, grandfather, son, and friend. And below that was the year he was born and the year he died. All important stuff, of course, but today I want to focus on that line that's in between his birth and death, that little dash that separates life from death. I don't think many people pay much attention to this line or even give it much thought. Yet for me, this line in between holds great significance because to me, this line represented me, who this man was while he was here on earth. From his first breath to his last, the job he did, the choices he made, and the impact he had on other souls. This line in between was everything that made up this man's legacy. So my question for you is, when all is said and done, and you've taken your last breath, what will your line say about you? A thousand years from now, will it matter what title the world gave you? No, probably not but it will make a huge difference whose child you are. In preparing for this weekend, I wanted to give a couple examples of people who made a name for themselves during my lifetime. Billy Graham was the first one I thought of and how he made such a difference in so many lives, leading thousands of others to Christ. 1918 to 2018, he was almost a hundred years old when he died. Billy's line in between goes something like this. An American evangelist, a prominent evangelical Christian leader, an ordained Southern Baptist minister, husband, father, grandfather, son, and friend. He was known as one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century. Billy made his mark in the world, and though I'm sure his wife Ruth would say he was far from perfect, Billy made a difference in God's kingdom. Now let's go to the opposite end of this line in between. Carla Faye Tucker, 1959 to 1998. 
She was 39 years old when she died. I'm not sure how many of you have ever heard of Carla Fay. Her line in between goes like this. Served 14 years on death row in a Texas prison for the brutal murder of two people with a pickaxe during a burglary while she and her boyfriend were high on drugs. Carla Fay was the first woman to be executed in the United States since 1984 and the first woman in Texas since 1863. But her story doesn't end there. Somewhere along the way, this precious lost soul found Jesus, and she repented from the bottom of her heart for all the wrong she had done. While serving time on death row, Carla Fay shared the love of Jesus often and led many women to the Lord. I was one of the many who believed in Carla Fay's conver conversion. I saw her face on TV during an interview with Diane Sawyer, and she literally glowed like an angel. I wrote to Carla nearly every day during the last month of her life to encourage her not to give up. I also wrote to the then governor of Texas, George W. Bush, at least a half a dozen times and asked, or maybe more like begged him three different times, to let her live. I, along with thousands of other people, including the then Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, televangelist Pat Robertson, and Pope John Paul II, strongly advocated for Carla Fay to have a reduced sentence of life without parole because we all knew that Carla would do more good if she lived than if she died. But it was denied, and I was devastated. Carla Fay was put to death on February 3, 1998, a date I will never forget. I was in the hospital with my oldest daughter, Jackie, who was in labor with her second child. As we waited for the contractions to get closer, I sat by her bed and we talked. After a while, Jackie asked me to turn on the TV to help pass the time. My heart sank. I knew Carla Fay would be all over the news, yet I still had high hopes of Governor Bush changing his mind at the last minute and allowing her to live. But he didn't and I was not prepared to watch. The moment the TV came on, the headlines were everywhere. Carla Faye Tucker dies by lethal injection. I couldn't stop the tears, but I didn't want Jackie to see me crying, so I went into the bathroom and wept silently. Was Carla Faye deserving of death? Yes, do I believe Carla Fay was forgiven of her sins and is now with our Savior? Absolutely, though her line in between was completely opposite of Billy Graham. I can say with all certainty that they are both rejoicing with their Savior in heaven because heaven isn't for the good. Heaven is for the forgiven. Fast forward 24 years. A while back, I had voiced my opinion on Facebook about a headline I had seen in our local newspaper that read Companion of the Year. The headline not only caught my eye, but so too did the picture of what appeared to be 
an innocent young girl sitting under a tree. She looked like a teenager, and I was intrigued. I wanted to know how this child had received such a title at such a young age. As it turned out, it wasn't what I thought at all. This child was 29 years old, and she was being publicly recognized for the job she does so well. Three years in a row, she had earned title, the title Companion of the Year, the highest-paid working prostitute in a Nevada brothel, with an annual income of over $1.2 million. I was horrified that this was in our local newspaper for young girls to see and who may even consider this way of life because of the insane amount of money this woman was making. I thought about my very impressionable granddaughters who could be swayed by this, and my heart broke. I will not name her nor her place of business. However, I will share another story, the true story of David, a Nevada brothel owner turned brother in Christ. I met David several years ago through correspondence as he served time in prison. David was one of the many prisoners that I was writing. All of my prison pen pals were serving time for something unimaginably shameful that they had done. Murder, robbery, fraud, child pornography, drugs, you name it. But it wasn't until they were sent to prison that most of them realized how wrong they had been and they repented and begged God's forgiveness and then accepted Jesus as their Savior. In one of his letters to me, David asked me about a book I had written. I wasn't totally sure if I was doing the right thing in the beginning by even, even writing a book of this nature. I had never done anything like it before. It felt very dark, and at first I was not comfortable being part of what this book represented. But I knew if God was leading me, then he must have a purpose. God made it very clear as it was all coming together, that I was right where I needed to be, for him, no one else. My hope through it all was that this book would bring him glory in all ways, and over the past few years, I believe it has done just that. The title is long, but it makes a point. I never thought I would beg my husband to go to a strip club is the true story of a young girl named Taylor who is lost in the sex trafficking world of drugs, pornography, prostitution, and strip clubs, and it will break your heart. Her family is crushed by the choices their daughter continues to make as she gets deeper into a world where she does not belong. Taylor comes from a good Christian family, and yet she chose to strip for a living. It was the money that lured her, and now it's Satan who keeps her there, holding her tightly in his grasp and constantly reminding her that she will never be anything better. I wanted to share this book with David. I thought if anyone could understand where this child was coming from, it would be him. Isaiah 6.8 Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, Lord, 
send me, and he did. God has used my gifts as a writer and an encourager many times over the past 20 plus years to bring him glory. He doesn't need me. He wants me. And I am humbled in ways I could never explain that he can use someone as simple and as uneducated as me to do a good work for him. I have had my prison ministry for many years. In fact, the first prisoner I reached out to was Carla Fay. Since then, I have written to well over two dozen men and women in different parts of the United States, some very well known, some not so much. My mission is always the same, to share the good news of Jesus Christ without judgment to any and all who need to hear it. My goal is that their hearts would eventually soften and that they might give him a chance to work in them. It doesn't always work, but I keep trying, waiting for that one person to grasp the miracle of it all. And then I found David. He was in a federal prison in Texas. If you're from the Reno-Tahoe area or you've lived here for a while, you have no doubt heard of this man. He was in the news often, sometimes as much for the good things he did, like donations of thousands of turkeys during Thanksgiving and toys for the kids at Christmas, as well as for the bad things. President of the Notorious Hells Angels and owner of the Old Bridge Ranch Brothel. He is also the nephew of the infamous Joe Conforti, who once owned the most notable brothel in America in America, the Mustang Ranch. Today, the Mustang Ranch has moved to a different location under new ownership, and the Old Bridge Ranch has closed its doors, but not before leaving their mark on thousands of patrons, as well as the women who work there. If you talk to these women, they will be the first to tell you what a nice man David was. They will tell you how he ran a first-class operation and he truly cared about his ladies. He gave them shelter. He protected them. He made sure they had everything they needed. He gave them the necessary rest they required in between jobs. And if they needed a vacation, he made sure they got that too. No, there wasn't anything that David wouldn't do for these women who happened on his doorstep of the brothel, needing or desiring the only work they knew how to do. Over our months of correspondence, David shared with me how he had found Jesus. I was thrilled to be writing to a prisoner who already knew the Lord. But further conversation with David led me to believe that he didn't quite get the concept of what he should be doing as a Christ follower. When I asked him what he planned to do when he was released, he wrote, I'm thinking about going back into the business. I was like a father to these girls, and they respected me because I protected them and gave them a place to live when they had no other place to go. Whoa, I was shaking my head. David was obviously confused, and he probably hadn't consulted God's will on his future plans. Or he wouldn't be thinking about using these girls again, even if he was giving them a place to stay. 
He didn't see the damage he had done. He didn't know their pain. David didn't feel guilty. He didn't know he was supposed to. It was how he was raised, and he made a darn good living at it, too. David shared his wealth with every man, woman, and child that stumbled into his world. Purposely or by accident, he loved his life, but one day it all came crashing down when he found himself in federal prison for a crime he did not do. I believed him. It's not in him to do the things they said, but he knows he is right where he belongs, where God needed him to be. However, he wasn't quite ready to let go of his past. He wasn't quite sorry enough. He didn't know any better, not until he read the book about this normal Christian family who ended up in Satan's den when their young daughter, Taylor, not her real name, chose to become a stripper. I finally sent him the book, hoping that he might want to rethink his future plans to continue in the business when he got out of prison. After he read it, he sent me an email. This is his response. Good evening, Tony. I just finished your book about Taylor's story, and it really hit home with me. Even though I know what goes on into the making of a sex industry worker, I never gave it much thought to the exact steps of that recipe. As you know, I have spent most of my adult life peddling sex for hire. After reading your book, I now have an entirely new vantage point to see the truth and my naive attitude toward my end of the business, no matter how hard I try to justify my past deeds. I never once considered the hurt that was caused to the parents and loved ones of those girls. Over the years, I have come to the realization that children are a mirror of their parents it isn't always about the positive things you tell your ch children that mold their lives. It's your actions that they learn to accept as normal that will often make them who they become. You have done an excellent job telling the story, but to me, the chapter that speaks volumes, the chapter with the most heart, is chapter 27, where Taylor bears her soul in her poem, Little did you know. To me, that poem is an anthem crying out from each heart of all those thousands of tailors who passed in and out of my life in Reno for 30 years. Those years I, I chose not to see or hear anyone's pain because of who I was, the general manager of the largest and most successful legal house of prostitution in American history the Mustang Ranch. That was in 1979. I was only 27 years old at the time, not that much older than most of the tailors in my life. From 79 to 89, I managed that brothel. In that time, no less than 250 new working girls a year came through those doors to sell their bodies and sometimes their souls. From 1984 until 2007, when I landed in federal prison, I also owned my own brothel in the same valley as the Mustang Ranch. 
That is a lot, of, a lot of hearts over 30 years that I failed to hear crying out. Not only the hearts of the many tailors, but also their families. That is now a lot of remorse that I have to reconcile. And a very large burden to carry. But like Taylor in the poem, I agree that I only have myself to blame. I, too, was also driven and blinded by the dollar. And I, too, started worshipping that dollar at a very young age. I was 21, only a few years older than Taylor when I first went to work at my uncle's brothel. Yet, even though I say my burden is heavy, I have found that I do not have to carry that burden by myself. I have finally given my heavy burden over to God through his son Jesus, and I can tell you it is working for me. And if it can work for me, it can work for anyone, and it can also work for all the tailors in the world. God has a plan, and we all have our part to play in his plan. With God's help and blessing, maybe I can lead some of them to the oasis you have supplied in your book. That's it for today. Have a good evening and a blessed tomorrow. In Christ, your friend, David. Ladies, David was a fairly new believer, and he didn't fully understand what his sin had done to so many for so long. He seemed to have accepted the gift of salvation but he hadn't completely surrendered his life to the Lord. But God did some heart surgery on David after he read the book, and he was forever changed. David also showed great courage when he shared his change of heart to all his family and friends who were on his list to receive his monthly newsletter from prison. He called this newsletter Behind the Barbed Wire, which at the time numbered over 500 people. His line in between had changed dramatically. Second Peter 3.9 He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Have you ever thought about the true meaning behind these words? God doesn't want anyone to perish. Not one. Not David. Not Carla Fay. And not us either. No matter what we have done. For God loves us so much that he gave us his son, and he does not want anyone to be without him when this life is over. But God will never make us choose his son Jesus as our Savior. He would never make us do anything that we don't want to do. The Bible calls it free will. Our Heavenly Father is a gentleman, and he would never go where he is not first invited into our hearts. But he also doesn't want anyone to perish because he loves us all. He desires every one of us to be in heaven with him someday. Yet sadly, few will surrender because they don't understand. They choose instead another way, a way where God is no longer, where love does not exist, where hope is gone. Over his dead body, they make the choice to live eternally without him. Many have asked, if God is so good, why doesn't he just choose everyone? 
but knowing how full of sin the human heart is, it makes much more sense for us to ask, why does he choose anyone at all? Sometimes it's hard for us to imagine why our Savior would even want certain people to spend eternity with him, like the Davids and the Carlefes, or any of us for that matter. But he does. Our job as Christians is to share God's message with everyone without judgment. And this includes all those who have done the unthinkable. Can we honestly do that? Even knowing what Carla Faye did and the path she chose to take, do you think you're any better than she is? Do you feel that she sinned worse than you? We are not to judge lest we be judged. Matthew 7, 2. You will be judged in the same way that you judged others. How quick are you to judge? Let's be honest. We all fall short in this area. Look at the thief on the cross. Would you have guessed that he would be in heaven when you get there? Hell-bent and hung out to die one minute, heaven-bound and smiling the next. And the apostle Peter, denying Jesus three times before he preached Christ to the world. And the psalmist King David, a man after God's own heart, a murderer and an adulteress, but because of God's grace, he becomes psalmist again. And what of us? We see a man stumbling in the street and we condemn him, but we didn't see the blows he took yesterday. We judge a woman for the limp in her walk, but cannot see the tack in her shoe. We mock the fear in their eyes, but we have no idea how many stones they have ducked or darts they have had to dodge. Are they too loud? Perhaps they fear being neglected again. Are they too timid? Perhaps they fear failing again. Are they moving too slow? Perhaps they fell the last time they hurried. You don't know. The only one who has followed yesterday's steps can be their judge. Not only are we ignorant about yesterday, but we are also ignorant about tomorrow. Dare we judge Dare we judge a book while the chapters are still being written? Should we pass a verdict on the painting while the artist is still holding the brush? How can you dismiss a soul until God's work is complete? Did you dismiss the murderer, adulterer, thief before they fell prostrate in front of our Savior in desperate repentance for the life they had lived before they knew him? Oftentimes, it is our past that God will use to help others through their present. It's all part of his plan. Not the sin, but the outcome. What about Carla Fay? Do you know how many women Carla brought to the Lord while she was on death row? Hundreds. I'd be willing to guess that it's more than most of us have done, right? And there, my friends, is God's grace and mercy at work. He can do all things, even mend a hardened heart like Carla's was, and mine, and maybe yours too. Being confident of this very thing, 
that God who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 Finding that person you feel is the most lost maybe isn't that lost after all. Maybe they're just waiting for someone like you to reach out, like I did with David, to love on them without judgment, no matter what they've done or from where they come. It is often those souls that are ripest for change. And remember, just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're better off than they are. It just means we're better than they are. It just means we're better off. And we always seem to be eager to help save a friend or family member, but sometimes the person that God puts on our hearts or in our path is not someone we would have chosen, but yet he still wants them in heaven. And his message to you is clear, because eternity is too long to be wrong. The fact that David was a big-time brothel owner and used women to make his living, and that God had chosen him to be his child may have shaken the foundation of your spiritual world and stirred every fiber of your being at the fairness of it all. You may find it very hard to believe that this man could be like you, saved for all eternity. But I assure you that it's true. And it can only come from a God who loves us all equally, no matter how deadly or deceitful the sin, that none shall perish. Believe it or not, this worst of the worst sinner has turned into the best of the best for Christ. So what makes David's story so much different than yours, a brothel owner? What about a prostitute, or an adulteress, or an abuser? or a murderer like Carla Fay was, or someone who had an abortion, which is murder, or maybe even something worse. Is there really any difference from those who are the liars, cheaters, gossipers, unkindly, angry, foul-mouthed? Where does God draw the line? Do those who do far worse really stand a chance of spending eternity in heaven with us? And what about the people from the Bible? We call Abraham our hero, but he once refused to call his wife his wife. We delight in the words of King David, yet David was known to delight in the wife of a friend. Rahab is one of a handful of females in the genealogy of Jesus. She was also a madam in the world's oldest profession. Paul killed Christians before he taught them. The Bible is full of famous failures. We name our children after them. We sing songs about them. But let's be honest. There isn't a human in the Bible who didn't behave like one. And so do we. Have you questioned whether God could ever use you after the things you've done? If so, you need to turn to the story in the book of John and read the miracle of Peter's restoration. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
John 21:15 As he did for Peter after the resurrection Jesus not only forgives us but he restores us to our place of service just like he did for Peter He washed us so that we might have so that we might once again be portraits of his goodness to hang in his gallery And yet it's hard for us to understand his grace and mercy Could it be our pride? Have you noticed how we sometimes get so prideful that we tend to rule, advise, and encourage from our throne instead of from our knees before God? We tend to get uncomfortable when others sin differently than we do. Forgive us for our arrogance, Father God. So how do we stay grounded in God's grace in such a fallen world? I know for me that every time I think I'm doing pretty good in my walk, I seem to get slammed by great temptation, something that Satan knows where I am weak and I am caught off guard. I'm embarrassed to admit that I sometimes find myself tempted to revert back to my old ways, even just for a moment, in order to please those who knew the fun me years ago before I knew who Jesus was. Yet somewhere in my heart, I realized that giving in to my desire to please them would mean carrying the guilt and repercussions of my ungodly actions forever, even as I mourn my choice to give in and then repent with great sorrow. Those who saw will never be able to unsee what I did or said. It would be forever remembered that I chose the world over my Savior, like what happened a while ago when I nearly caved from desperation for my family's approval to be the fun person that they knew me to be years before. I thought I was stronger than that. Can you imagine what my line in between would have said to those who were there? I wanted so much to show them that I was still fun, but at what cost? Like what David said, we are mirrors for our children and family. It's not always about the positive things we say. It is our actions. I thank God I didn't give in but I was closer than I had ever been since accepting him as my Lord. I'm forever grateful that I recovered quickly and that he kept the cross in my sight so that I remembered to whom I belong. For greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 God will never tempt us, my friends. He will, however, test us because he wants to make sure that our hearts are strong enough when the attacks come, and they will come, you can be sure. Satan will try to tempt us whenever he can, but being tempted is not a sin, for even Jesus was tempted. It's when you give in to that temptation that it's wrong. I chose Jesus years ago and every single day of my life since. I may be tempted on occasion, but Jesus will always come to my rescue if I stay grounded in his word and remember what he did for me on the cross. 
I want to be a good example of Jesus, but that day I almost wasn't. So if the world ever looks at you and thinks, Christians can do that? Why? Wow. That's not much different than what I do now. Maybe I'll try being a Christian. It looks like fun. If they're thinking this, my friends, then something is terribly wrong with your walk. And what about our children and their line? For they have a big role in how our lines turn out. As they find their way into adulthood, are we doing what is best for them? Sometimes I find myself getting too involved with my kids, trying to give them advice that they don't really want, nor did they ask for, especially my youngest daughter, because I know she has gone through great heartache, and most of her heartache is because of the poor choices I made when she was very young and I didn't know Jesus. I tend to come to her rescue way too often because of the guilt I feel. I believe it's called enabling. A while back after being emotionally drained while, tra while trying to help my daughter through yet another crisis, I was visibly shaken when I showed up at my lady's Bible study. After I shared with them what had just happened, that's when a very wise friend said to me, don't deny her her struggle. Ladies, I have to tell you that in all my more than 56 years of raising kids, I had never heard such wisdom, and denying her her struggle was exactly what I was doing, getting in God's way and denying her the right to go through struggles so that he could strengthen her and one day use her for his kingdom and his glory. I thought back on all the times when I went through my own struggles before Jesus, and I had no one to run to. And it, it was when I was at my lowest point that I cried out to him, and he stepped in and changed my life. And except for a few scars, I turned out okay. And I know my daughter will too, if I allow God to do his work. And what about our adult children when they go astray? Of course, our hearts break because we know somewhere deep inside that their heart is breaking too. We pray we didn't cause their heartache or confusion. We pray they will find their way back to us and to God. But today, for whatever reason, our child is not the one we used to know. No longer are they the kind-hearted, forgiving soul that beautiful picture of God's masterpiece. Now they seem to be hurting, angry, and broken, and somewhere along the way, they've lost their way. Their hearts grew hard and prideful, and now they are everything we never thought they'd ever be, becoming that someone we barely know anymore. Suddenly you find yourself searching frantically for that remnant from their past, a school photo, a childlike drawing, a pair of baby shoes they once wore. And as you cling to the precious memories, you realize with great sadness that you need this reminder of the child you loved so much to soften the edges of the adult you don't like right now. 
Is it possible to love someone more than life and not like them very much? I believe it is. The love will never cease. As mothers, our love never dies. It may fail to meet their expectations, but our love will never cease to exist. We may not like their behavior, their choices, or their ways, but we love them still and always, no matter what. So we step back, but don't ever give up on them or on God. Continue to pray that they will come back restored and renewed, for God will use even this for his purpose and plan someday, and your child's story will be his glory, and your line in between will glow brighter as their line grows stronger. Dear sisters, in case you don't know, the devil will do anything to get to those we love. His attacks are real and they can be brutal. He is out to kill, steal, and destroy whatever you have, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, and all those you love. Satan does not play favorites. We have all been his victims at one time or another. Once he finds that slightest crack in our foundation or our faith, whatever our weakness, when we let down our guard, he jumps he slithers, he pounces, and he won't let go until we fail or fall or pray. The devil is always messing with our minds. He brings only gloom and doom. By the time he was finished with Job, the man was sick and alone. By the time he had done work, his work in Judas, the disciple had given up on life. The devil is to hope what termites are to an oak. He will chew you up from the inside. Exaggerated, overstated, inflated, irrational thoughts are the devil's specialty. No one will ever love me. It's all over for me. Everyone is against me. I'll never lose weight or get out of debt or have any friends. What wretches wretched, monstrous lies. There is no problem that is unsolvable, no life that is irredeemable. No one's fate is sealed. No one is unloved or unlovable. But Satan wants us to believe we are. Satan doesn't want us to forget our past. He will remind us any chance he gets of who we used to be. When this happens, just thank him for reminding you so that you can thank God again for forgiving you. And then tell Satan to get out. When you have asked God to forgive your past sins and you've asked him a thousand times, stop doing that. Instead, ask him to forgive you once and then thank him a thousand times that he did. It's in the past. Let it be. For Satan is the master of deceit, but he is not the master of your mind. You have a power he cannot defeat. You have God on your side, and he will help you as well. Guard your thoughts and your heart, and trust your Father with your everything. 
And just FYI, Satan doesn't waste his time with just anyone. He only attacks what is valuable, and you are valuable. You are God's most valued treasure. What can we do to keep Satan away? Pray. Who can we turn to who is more powerful? Jesus, don't let Satan have one more second of your life or your family's life. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. John 16, 33. We all wandered around in the dark before stepping into the light of Jesus. But on occasion, we still fall short and get tangled in our sin. If you're in bondage to your weakness, don't give up. Don't let the troubles of the moment hide the glory of his purpose. And he does have a purpose for it all. He will use even this to open doors for you. It is not hopeless, my friends. It's just not easy. Fight the good fight and finish the race. The devil would love for us to believe that we are wasted potential, but God says differently. In Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And in John three sixteen seventeen, For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And the list goes on. We will make mistakes, friends, because we are human. But our mistakes don't limit us, only fear does. You can be whoever you want to be. The only thing stopping you is you. So hold tight to his promises and wait for his direction. In fact, waiting on God is an active part of our preparation. And it's never a waste of time. But remember, there are no shortcuts in faith. When we trust him, we don't need to understand. 1 Peter 5, 6, 7 Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. For genuine faith hears the inaudible, sees the invisible, touches the intangible, and accomplishes the impossible. Walk by faith, not by sight. Seek the healer. Fall in love with Jesus and keep encouraging those who need encouraging. For faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. 
Our line in between should be filled with the hope of Jesus and telling others about that hope. From the time we accept him, accept him as our Savior to our last breath, we as believers have two jobs, to shine and share. Shine his light and share his love with everyone because once again we know that eternity is too long to be wrong. Mark Batterson, author of the book All In, says, When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things, that faithfulness is holding the fort, that playing it safe is safe? Jesus didn't die to keep us safe, my friends. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. It's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. It's time to go all in and all out for the all and all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, if we start living this way, maybe one day our headstones will say, when she came or he came, there was no light. When they left, there was no darkness. Praise God for his amazing grace and love. And by the way, do you know that there are only two times that we should praise the Lord? Number one, when you, don't, when you feel like it. And number two, when you don't. So praise him always. Now I'll ask the question again. On that day when someone looks at your headstone, what will your line in between say about you? Did you make a difference? Did you help change a life or reach out when someone needed you? Are you telling others about the God who loves them and the Savior who died for them so that one day they will know that heaven is real and that God wants them there with him no matter what they've done? Only God can, co can cause a coincidence on purpose. So it is not by accident that you are listening to this today. And because you are, your line in between is still being filled in. Make today the day you make your line worth living for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Help us to digest all the nuggets that you have given us and help us to live this life in obedience and joy and to let others see your light in us all. It's all about you, Father God. Let us walk in faith and abide in your love for all who cross our path. Shine in us, dear Lord, today and always. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. <laughs>